Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On August 23, 1982, Dr. Kathy Holland opened her brand new pediatric clinic in Kerrville, Texas. It was a small practice with her, a receptionist, and a nurse. She was hopeful that she would find big success in a small town that didn't have its own pediatrician, and she immediately got recommendations and a few patients were coming in every day. Unfortunately, they were also crashing in her office and needed to be transferred to the hospital. In the first month after her practice opened, seven of Dr. Holland's patients had to be rushed to the hospital a total of eight times. On 15-month-old Chelsea McClellan's second time at the emergency room, she died. It was an unheard-of number of emergencies for a pediatric clinic to have, and it became clear that the medical issues befalling these children were not happening naturally. Someone was poisoning babies. This is Monsters. Janine Jones was born on July 13, 1950 in San Antonio, Texas, but was immediately put up for adoption. She was adopted by Dick and Gladys Jones, who had three other adopted children. Dick Jones had grown up in San Antonio, and due to his father dying when he was fairly young, his family struggled. He wanted to ensure that he had a better life as an adult, so when he graduated from high school, he started his own business. Now, this happened right as the United States was thrown into the Great Depression, but Dick seemed to have found a recession-proof business. Gambling. He became a bookie and he took bets on anything that a person could bet on. He ended up with three different clubs where people could place bets. The clubs were located in areas around the city that would get him a variety of clientele. Dick married Gladys in 1933, and not long after, he was shot three times in the chest while trying to stop a man who was attempting to rob one of his clubs. Doctors weren't sure if he would make it, but it seemed that three rounds were not enough to take out Dick Jones. Once he recovered, Gladys asked him to get out of the gambling business and to find a safer profession. He tried digging for oil, but didn't have any luck, so he opened a large nightclub on the edge of town. The Kit Kat Club was popular from the beginning, but after World War II, the place became a local hotspot and would stay that way for decades. Dick and Gladys weren't able to conceive children of their own, so they chose to adopt. They adopted four children, Lisa in 1943, Wiley in 1946, Janine in 1950, and Travis in 1952. They all grew up in a mansion that was about a mile away from the Kit Kat Club. It had a library, a pool, a tennis yard, and a stable with two horses. They lived a dream lifestyle for a while, but in the late 50s, the Kit Kat Club's popularity began to die off. It wasn't long before the place was losing money and Dick was struggling to stay afloat. He turned part of his property into a trailer park. Then he tried to turn the recreation building at the trailer park into a restaurant, but it failed. I can't see why. I mean, whenever I want to go out for a meal, going to a restaurant in a trailer park sounds great. Real first date material. Dick would go on to sell the Kit Kat Club in 1963. He began manufacturing signs and installing billboards. It seemed that the four adopted children spent most of their time paired off. Lisa and Wiley would spend their time together, while Janine and Travis spent their time together. It's said that Travis was Janine's best friend. In November of 1966, 14-year-old Travis was in his father's sign shop when an employee noticed that he was building some sort of pipe bomb. The employee told him to stop before he got hurt, but it was too late. A few seconds later, the device exploded and Travis was rushed to the hospital. He had gotten metal shards embedded in his skull and died later that day. 
16-year-old Janine was absolutely destroyed by the death of her brother. The funeral was in the morning and she screamed as they lowered his coffin into the ground, but oddly, she arrived at school later that day. Some people felt like she wanted the opportunity to get as much sympathy from people as possible. With Travis gone and not being close to either Lisa or Wiley, Dick became Janine's closest friend. She wasn't popular in high school, with other students saying she was bossy and obnoxious. She also worked night jobs to make extra money and would show up to school so tired that she would fall asleep in class. People said she regularly placed blame elsewhere for her circumstances. She complained that people didn't like her because of her father's reputation for gambling. As a teenager, she longed for more attention, which was where she developed a habit of lying. She told people that she was the cousin of Mickey Dolenz, a member of the 1960s group The Monkees. She even claimed that he would call her from time to time. She would take her father's El Camino and drag race, which was normally only done by boys at the time. She relished the spotlight when she won, which is said to be more often than not. In October of 1967, Dick went to the hospital and was told he had terminal cancer. Despite being able to survive three bullets to the chest 30 years prior, he no longer had a fighting spirit. People say that he wasn't the same after Travis died and he refused any medical treatment and chose to spend the rest of his days at home. He died on January 3, 1968. Their mother put Wiley in charge of the sign business even though that's not what he wanted in life. Janine was a self-proclaimed black sheep and she decided she was going to get married in order to get away from her family. She already didn't get along well with her mother, but now that her father was gone, the fighting was even worse. At the age of 17, Janine was planning to marry her boyfriend, a man named James Delaney Jr. They had started dating two years prior and by the time Janine was a senior in high school, James was a 19-year-old high school dropout who worked various gas station jobs. Janine's mother convinced her to wait until she graduated high school, so on June 15, 1968, 14 days after her graduation, she got married to James. They went on a honeymoon to Corpus Christi on the Gulf Coast and then moved into the guest house on the Jones estate. I guess she didn't really want to get that far away from her family. It's said that the marriage didn't go well. Janine stayed at home while James worked from time to time. He would work as a mechanic long enough to make some money, then he would quit so he could spend his time working on his own cars. So they always fought about money, but they also fought when James found out that Janine was taking his cars out and racing them. Eventually, James joined the Navy since he believed he would get drafted anyway and he was sent to San Diego for training. When he returned, he learned that Janine had been sleeping with other men, one of which was his best friend. James forgave her infidelity, most likely because he had his own, and then deployed with the Navy. In May of 1969, Gladys built a house on a different plot of land that Dick had bought years before and moved out to live the rest of her life in seclusion. The house she built had no windows and people said inside it felt like a nightclub because there was no natural light. She sold the estate and Janine moved into an apartment. Gladys also paid for Janine to attend beauty college to become a beautician. In 1970, James was stationed at Naval Air Station Albany in Albany, Georgia, and after finishing beauty school, Janine moved out to live with him. James was not the model of an exemplary sailor, though, and often found himself receiving disciplinary action. On September 29, 1971, he was discharged early from the Navy. Janine and James stayed in Albany, her working as a beautician and him as a mechanic. The only thing that changed about their marriage was that Janine was now pregnant. On January 29, 1972, Janine gave birth to a son who they named Richard after her father, though they would call him by his middle name, Edward. Parenthood did nothing to change their wild behavior and appetite for speed. They bought a brand new Chevy Nova and James immediately tore it apart to make modifications so it would go faster. In the spring of 1972, James, Janine, and some friends were using a speedboat on Kinchafuni Creek when they crashed into another boat, causing it to sink and a 15-year-old boy to drown. Janine was unharmed, but James had broken some ribs and was taken to the hospital. Not long after, James returned home from work one day to find Janine and the baby gone. She had packed up and returned to San Antonio. 
He followed, but she had already filed for divorce, claiming that he was abusive. The judge signed an order banning him from having any contact with Janine or the baby. Janine spent a short time living with her family and then got back together with James, moving into a house with him. The divorce filing and restraining order was dismissed. The renewed marriage only lasted a month before Janine moved into her own apartment and filed for divorce again. Despite getting weekly visitation, James usually didn't show up. Soon, he stopped paying child support and disappeared from his son's life. Janine continued to work as a beautician and her mother would watch the baby during the day. Death would come for the Jones family once again in September of 1974 when Wiley died of testicular cancer. Janine became terrified of getting cancer, and when she started having medical issues in 1975, she went to the doctor afraid that he was going to tell her that she had cancer. Fortunately, she didn't have cancer, but she was allergic to some of the chemicals and the beauty supplies that she worked with. The doctor supposedly told her that she needed to find a new line of work or she could possibly lose her hands. Not only did Janine have to change careers, but she also found out she was pregnant. She told friends that the baby was James's from when they had a short-lived reconciliation. Most people believed that that was the most likely scenario, but Janine told her mother that she had gotten pregnant by a beauty supply salesman named Keith Martin. She told Gladys that he had died in a car accident, but years later it would be revealed that he was alive and well, and also that he was gay. Now, I know it's possible for a gay man to have sex with a woman. The problem is that Keith himself said he never did. He would later say that she tried to get him in bed, but he was never interested. When Janine was told to change careers, she developed an interest in medicine, which turned into more of an obsession. This is why she chose to start a new career as a nurse. In June of 1976, Janine began attending the San Antonio Independent School District School of Vocational Nursing. Janine got better grades in nursing school than she did in high school, and on May 20, 1977, she graduated with a diploma and became a licensed vocational nurse, or LVN. In some states, it's called a licensed practical nurse, or LPN. It takes another year of schooling to become a registered nurse, or RN, but Janine was eager to start working. She wouldn't be able to start as soon as she liked, though, because by the time she graduated from nursing school, she was seven months pregnant. On July 17, 1977, Janine gave birth to a daughter named Crystal. Janine had already moved in with her mother and Gladys would take care of the children while her daughter was working as a nurse. Janine had already worked as a beautician at the Methodist Hospital and now that she was a nurse, she was able to secure a job with her old employer. She started off with good reviews, but five months after she started working, she received a review that stated, quote, Miss Jones tends to make judgments that she has neither the experience nor authority to make. Just three months later, she was asked to resign from her position. Janine explained that it was due to a disagreement with a doctor, but hospital records show that it was due to complaints by a patient. It turned out that she had yelled at and gotten physically abusive with a patient and was reprimanded the next day. When she asked if she could talk to the patient, she was told no. She came in early the next morning and confronted the patient anyway, which caused the patient, in a cardiac intensive care unit, stress. This resulted in the patient experiencing chest pain and increased blood pressure. So yeah, she was fired. But like many hospitals do, instead of firing her, they convinced her to resign. It protected them from any wrongful termination suits, but it also made it easy for her to get another job. Like now, there was a nursing shortage at the time, and every hospital was hiring. So Janine got a job at Community Hospital in their obstetrics and gynecology ward. She had to resign her position there after five months, but it wasn't for any patient complaints. She had scheduled herself for a tubal ligation, commonly referred to as having your tubes tied, but she didn't have any sick leave and she didn't want to reschedule the procedure. When she recovered, she applied for a job in the intensive care unit of Brexer County Hospital, but was offered a job in the pediatric unit. When the county hospital sent out forms to her previous employers asking about her work performance, Methodist Hospital returned it without answering the questions. The county hospital didn't seem to pursue the matter any further. 
they were given no details that Janine had physically abused a patient and didn't have any reason to think she shouldn't be put in charge of ill children. She started working there on October 30th, 1978. The first infant she took care of was born premature with a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is often fatal. After receiving surgery, the baby returned to the ICU where they died. The RN who supervised Janine said that she became hysterical when she learned that the baby had died. She put a stool next to the baby and just stared at the tiny lifeless body. Despite this emotional start to her work in the pediatric ICU, she turned into a nurse who impressed her supervisor by always being willing to pick up extra shifts and having the ability to place an IV in even the tiniest patient. She may have rubbed some of the other hospital staff the wrong way, but the patient's families raved about her. She took the time to get to know them and listen to their concerns. At the hospital, her desire to be in the spotlight returned and she began telling tall tales. She claimed to have gotten into a car accident and then she spent time in a coma. She claimed that she shot her brother-in-law in the crotch when he abused her sister. Janine also began believing that she knew more than the doctors. She would call doctors to a patient because she had noticed something that was a sign of a serious problem, but the doctor would find nothing wrong with the patient. When the doctor dismissed her claim, she would call in another doctor. If they didn't agree with her, she'd call the resident doctor and then she'd call the attending. She would suggest medications, dosages, and treatments, and if the doctor didn't listen to her, she'd tell them that the patient was going to die. The doctors at the hospital were tired of Janine crying wolf, but things would only get worse. In 1980, Dr. James Robotham became the director of the pediatric ICU. Dr. Robotham was extremely experienced in pediatric intensive care and he told the doctors and nurses to watch for even the smallest changes that may mean a patient's condition was changing. When he learned about Janine's constant alarms, he praised her and told the head nurse that Janine was the best nurse in the ICU. She began telling other people how the doctors always made mistakes and how she would correct their diagnoses and save the child's life. Janine also made up medical issues about herself. She went to the hospital's clinic or emergency room 30 times in 27 months. She went for diarrhea, vomiting, indigestion, acute gastroenteritis. She had chest pains, trouble breathing, she smoked a pack and a half a day, lack of energy, her hands itched, she had excessive menstrual bleeding, and another time had a lack of menstrual bleeding, a sore throat, plus neck pain, back pain, abdominal pain. Oh, and once, she had cut her thumb. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One instance, she was released after finding nothing wrong with her during eight days of tests, and she returned to the ER the same day complaining of coughing, dizziness, chills, blurred vision, and sharp then pounding pain in her temples. This might be an example of Munchausen syndrome, which is now called factitious disorder. In my episode about Lacey Spears, I describe that what she's doing is Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is now called factitious disorder imposed on another, which doesn't really roll off the tongue quite as well, but it's a more accurate title. The proxy, or other, was her son. Janine was possibly pretending to be sick to get attention, but she was doing it to herself so it would just be factitious disorder. It's also possible that she wasn't faking being ill for attention and believed she was actually sick, which would have meant that she was suffering from illness anxiety disorder, which used to be called hypochondria. Either way, that meant that she was in charge of caring for sick or injured children and she didn't really have a proper grasp on when an illness was real. It wouldn't be long before Janine would start ensuring that she was correct in her proclamation that a child was going to die. On May 14, 1981, Janine called the parents of one-year-old Chris Hojeda and informed them that their child had passed away. He had been born with a heart defect and had spent months in the hospital. 
They lived 200 miles away, so they got in their car and drove to the hospital to say goodbye to their baby boy. The only problem was that Chris wasn't dead. That's a good problem to have, but why would Janine call them and tell them that their son was dead? Well, it seemed that she believed she knew exactly what was going on with her patients down to knowing when they were going to die. When she gave her report to the other nurses at the end of her shift, she told them that Chris wasn't doing well and that he was going to die. Then she apparently called his parents and preemptively broke the news to them. By the time the Hoedas arrived at the hospital, Janine was gone. Of course, they were happy to see their son was still alive, but it made for a confusing, emotional roller coaster. Janine was reprimanded for the incident, but continued to be assigned to Chris's case. Chris died a week later while being cared for by Janine. This case was the beginning of a time period where children in the pediatric ICU began dying at an unusually high rate. Children would come into the ICU stable and would suddenly have seizures or stop breathing. Some of the children would begin bleeding uncontrollably as if their blood wouldn't clot. Four-month-old Paul Villarreal had an elective procedure done on his skull and was put into the pediatric ICU for recovery. The procedure went well and doctors had no reason to think he wouldn't recover without any complications. Suddenly, he began getting sicker, and when he was placed on a ventilator, blood began pouring out of the tube that had been placed down his throat. The following night, he died, and lab tests showed that his blood wasn't clotting. Over the course of four months, the amount of patients who died in the pediatric ICU became statistically improbable. An ICU will have a certain percentage of deaths, and that number doesn't double from something natural. On top of that, children were coming in for treatments that had their own statistics of survivability and those patients were dying at a rate that was just improbable. The pediatric ICU at Bexar County Hospital normally experienced a patient who needed to be resuscitated three or four times a month. In August of 1981, they had nine. In September, they had 13, three to four times the normal amount. The doctors began trying to figure out what was happening, but they quickly realized that almost all of the deaths were happening on the evening shift, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Not only was it happening on that one shift, but a majority of the deaths were Janine's patients. She told a co-worker that she was afraid people would start thinking she was, quote, the death nurse, since she was always taking babies downstairs to the morgue. Despite the fact that the increase in deaths was narrowed down to Janine's patients on her shift, her supervisor, Pat Belko, didn't believe that she could be doing anything to hurt the children in the unit. She worked so hard and took such good care of the patients that she couldn't even entertain the possibility. When other nurses would talk about their suspicions, which were very understandable, Pat would tell them to either prove what they were saying or shut up. Pat assumed that the other nurses were just gossiping because they didn't like Janine. She was loud and abrasive and many of the nurses didn't like her. What the nurses didn't know though was that there was another reason that Pat was defending Janine. Pat Belko had accidentally killed a 16-month-old patient 10 years earlier. She had misread the doctor's notes and gave the baby 0.45 milligrams of digoxin, but the doctor had ordered 0.045 milligrams of the drug. That drug slows the heartbeat and getting 10 times the dose ultimately killed the baby. Pat was suspended and an impartial inquiry found that the baby could have just as likely died of the pneumonia that she was suffering from and that the nurse had made an honest mistake. She was reinstated and eventually became the head nurse at Bexar County Hospital's pediatric ICU. This made her defense of Janine not entirely impartial. Instead of just sitting by and letting children die, one nurse, RN Susanna Maldonado, decided to accept Pat's challenge and began compiling information about all of the deaths that had happened in their unit that year. When she was finished, she presented the information to Pat and it was clear that Janine was the most likely cause of the increase in deaths. Pat took the information to Dr. Robotham and they decided they needed to open an investigation. So, the rate of death in children in the pediatric ICU has risen to a level that was considered improbable to have happened naturally and you haven't already opened an investigation? 
In researching this case, it just seemed like months were passing where an excessive amount of children were dying, enough to alarm the staff, but instead of trying to figure out why or stop it, they just shrugged and went, huh, it's crazy. While this shoulder shrugging was going on, six-month-old Jose Flores was admitted to the ICU on October 10th. He suffered from a fever, vomiting, diarrhea, and dehydration, symptoms that were unlikely to cause the child's death. Three days later, when he mysteriously developed seizures, he was taken for a brain scan and while there, in the care of only Janine, he went into cardiac arrest. When they got him back to the ICU, they noticed that he was bleeding excessively and his blood wasn't clotting. Doctors stabilized the baby and he was fine until Janine came in on her shift the following day. That afternoon, Jose started having seizures and was bleeding again. He died at 5.22 p.m. When Jose's parents were told that their child had passed, his father started having chest pains. Janine escorted them to the emergency room and let Jose's brother carry his body, which was wrapped in a blanket. When they got to the ER, Janine snatched the baby out of the brother's arms and ran off down the hall. The family chased after her, but she lost them and took the baby to the morgue. This strange behavior was never explained by Janine, and after a verbal warning, no further action was taken. On October 19th, three-month-old Albert Garza was admitted to the ICU to recover from diarrhea and dehydration caused by acidosis. He was assigned to Janine and suddenly started bleeding during her shift. Dr. Robotham had begun an investigation and he had told doctors that he was concerned with heparin, which is an anticoagulant. If a patient got too much, it would cause them to start bleeding, which left untreated could lead to death. Initially, he wasn't saying that anyone was giving the patients overdoses of heparin. He considered the possibility that the drug they had on hand was manufactured wrong, or that it was caused by contaminated equipment. He wasn't sure, but he warned the doctors about heparin. The doctors who treated Albert took turns sitting in his room with him so that nobody could be alone with their patient. When they were called away to an emergency, Albert began bleeding again. When the doctors got back to Albert, they immediately tested his blood and found that he had too much heparin in his system. When they saw Janine about to push more heparin into the boy's line, one doctor asked how much heparin she was using. She told them 333 cc's. The proper dosage was less than one. Pat Belko claimed that the error was an honest mistake, not surprising there. Even though, Dr. Robotham ordered that two nurses had to be present any time someone needed heparin and that both nurses had to initial the bottle. He also ordered blood tests for all patients in the pediatric ICU who died. In October, eight patients needed to be resuscitated. All of them were Janine's patients. She also went to the ER for her own issues 16 times in the second half of 1981. She was hospitalized four times, never having doctors find anything wrong with her. But coincidentally, none of the patients in the pediatric ICU died during the 17 days that she had collectively stayed in the hospital. After Dr. Robotham investigated and found that a majority of the deaths happened under Janine's care, he wrote a report pointing out nine deaths that were either unexpected or inconsistent with the child's illness. All nine patients were being cared for by Janine. A staff hematologist believed that two cases were likely caused by an overdose of heparin. When this information was presented to the people who ran the hospital, they remained skeptical. They had heard that Janine had just made an honest mistake and they considered the matter over. Children were dying at an alarming rate and again, they shrugged it off. Dr. Robotham, who was once a big fan of Janine's, couldn't stop looking into the deaths though. He had samples of unopened heparin tested and they all came back normal. He had medical equipment tested for contaminants, but they all came back clean. There was no other reason that children were dying at a higher rate than someone was intentionally doing it. 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer was admitted to the hospital on December 8th. He was in a coma after suffering from smoke inhalation when his family home caught on fire. A scan showed brain activity, so neurologists felt his chance of waking up was good. He was in the pediatric ICU for three days, and though he was still in a coma, his condition was improving. He had been removed from a respirator and was breathing on his own. 
At 3 p.m. on December 11th, his care was transferred to Janine. He went into tachycardia at 7 p.m. Doctors stabilized him, but when LVN Pat Alberti came in for her shift at 11 p.m., she heard Janine telling his parents that he would likely have permanent brain damage. She told them that their baby would be better off dead. The following day, during Janine's shift, Joshua died at 9.22 p.m. Doctors who were treating Joshua had sent a blood sample to the lab while they were still fighting to keep him alive. They wanted to know how much Dilantin was in his system. Dilantin is an anti-seizure drug, but too much could cause cardiac arrest. A normal level of Dilantin is 10 to 20 units. The results from Joshua's blood sample were 59.6. This would prove that someone had deliberately poisoned Joshua, the only person having the opportunity being Janine. But after the boy died, the lab results got lost in the shuffle. The doctors wanted the lab results to try to help save him, but since he had died, they weren't important anymore. They got put into the boy's chart and filed away. Over the previous year, a hospital assistant named Patricia Lopez had complained multiple times that supplies were missing from crash carts in the pediatric ICU. About ten times she found crash carts that hadn't been used opened with supplies missing. These instances all happened on the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift. Every single time, the items that were missing were a tourniquet, some gauze pads, some syringes, and a 10,000-unit bottle of heparin. She reported the incidents to her supervisor, but they didn't work in the pediatric ICU and had no idea about the problems they were having with unexplained deaths. They also seemed to have strong shoulders because they shrugged it off and told Patricia to just replace the items when they found they had been taken. Dr. Kenneth Copeland, not that Kenneth Copeland, had treated one-month-old Rolando Santos on December 27th. He had come into the hospital with pneumonia and he was placed on a respirator in the pediatric ICU. Dr. Copeland had no reason to believe that the child wouldn't make a full recovery. On December 29th, Rolando began having seizures. Doctors stabilized him and did a brain scan but found no reason for the seizures. On January 1st, the boy had improved enough to be taken off a respirator, but then his blood pressure dropped. Doctors stabilized him and he continued to improve. Then, on January 3rd, he started bleeding heavily and went into cardiac arrest, but doctors stabilized him again. On January 9th, Rolando started bleeding again. Dr. Copeland didn't know what was happening to the baby, but he took the last-minute chance of injecting him with protamine sulfate, which would reverse the effects of a heparin overdose. Unfortunately, if he was wrong and the baby didn't have an excess of heparin in his system, the protamine sulfate would likely kill him. Dr. Copeland was right, and after giving the little boy a large dose of protamine sulfate, the bleeding stopped. There was no way that a nurse accidentally gave Rolando too much heparin. This was deliberate. Dr. Copeland ordered the patient to be taken out of the ICU and guarded around the clock. Five days later, Rolando had fully recovered and was discharged. When this new information was taken to the hospital administrators, they surely took action, right? Nope. Janine claimed that a nurse on the day shift had accidentally mixed up heparin with the antibiotics that Rolando was taking. Despite Dr. Copeland explaining that the bottles for those two drugs were different sizes and were clearly labeled with different colors, and that the bleeding happened on the 3 to 11 shift, not the day shift, the concern was once again shrugged off. I'd like to add that even if the nurse hadn't intentionally overdosed the baby, that means a nurse confused two completely different drugs that were clearly labeled and nearly killed a baby. It almost seems like it would be better if it was intentional than due to massive incompetence by one nurse. Maybe it's just me. On January 14th, four-month-old Patrick Zavala had heart surgery to repair a birth defect. The procedure went smoothly and Patrick was sent to the pediatric ICU with virtually no chance that he wouldn't heal up and go home. On January 17th, the patient was doing well and doctors were planning to take him off his respirator. That day, the day shift nurse reported that he was alert and well all day. As soon as Janine came on shift, she started noting that Patrick was lethargic and that his condition was getting worse. Except the baby's mother was with him until 6pm and said he was sleeping well the whole time. 
About 30 minutes after Patrick's mother left, the doctor was called in because the baby was completely unresponsive. This kicked off a series of codes that ended with the patient's death. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free and Anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Surgeons can be described as competitive. They want to be the best at what they do, which is great because it involves saving lives. They want all of their patients to survive, which is impossible, but usually the patient dies because there was some sort of complication or the odds of success with the surgery weren't good to begin with. When a very routine operation is performed and the patient is recovering well, then suddenly dies, surgeons don't like that. When that starts happening often, they start asking questions. It was complaints by the surgeons that finally got the hospital administrators to start taking the problem seriously. And by taking it seriously, I mean they talked to a lawyer. They wanted to find out if they could fire the nurse that was suspected of killing children. The most important thing the lawyer told them is that they could get sued. The lives of babies were officially a lower priority than not getting sued. They decided the best course of action would be to keep the whole thing quiet while they started a whole new investigation. They hired an outside specialist to come in and evaluate the pediatric ICU. What this specialist did was determine that Dr. Robotham was burned out and needed to be replaced. Then, instead of admitting that a single nurse was responsible for children's deaths, they decided to let all of the LVNs go under the guise of wanting the ICU staffed with nothing but RNs. This got Janine Jones out of the hospital, but all it did was transfer the problem to a different place. After Janine left the hospital, the rise in patient deaths in the pediatric ICU went back down. But the deaths didn't stop. They just moved somewhere else. Janine already had another job lined up before she left Bexar County Hospital in the middle of March. She became the office nurse at a private pediatrician's office in Kerrville, Texas. Dr. Holland was opening her own clinic and despite hearing the suspicions of Janine, she didn't believe them. It didn't help that Bexar County Hospital gave the suspected child killer a positive review. Dr. Holland thought that Janine was a great nurse and would take excellent care of her patients. She would unfortunately be proven wrong. When Dr. Holland was setting up her office, she relied on Janine to help her put together an order of drugs that the office should have on hand. Janine made sure that she would have everything the clinic needed, but Dr. Holland wanted her to add one extra item a drug called succinylcholine. It was a paralytic that anesthesiologists used to keep a patient from gagging while having a breathing tube placed. She wanted to have it on hand in case she needed to place a breathing tube, but it's not common at a pediatrician's office. A strong enough dose would paralyze a patient to the point they wouldn't be able to breathe on their own. Despite that, it was ordered and stocked at the clinic. On August 24, 1982, the second day Dr. Holland's clinic was open, she was scheduled to see 14-month-old Chelsea McClellan. Chelsea's mother, Petty, had taken her daughter to the doctor that day because she had the sniffles. On the patient intake form, where it asked for a reason for the visit, she wrote, quote, bad cold. According to Dr. Holland, the receptionist told her that the McClellans were concerned about Chelsea's breathing and even said that the child was turning blue by the time she arrived at the clinic. Petty would go on record saying that there was zero truth in that statement. She can only assume that they said that in order to explain what happened at the appointment. While Petty and Chelsea were in Dr. Holland's office going over the girl's medical history, Janine suggested she take the little girl and play with her so she wouldn't be a distraction. 
Then she led Chelsea out of the office. A few minutes later, Janine could be heard asking the girl to wake up before calling the doctor. Dr. Holland went into the exam room to find an unresponsive Chelsea with Janine working to get an oxygen mask over her face. Then Chelsea began having a seizure and they called an ambulance. By the time they got to the local hospital, the little girl was breathing again and she ended up recovering. Patty was grateful to the doctor and told everyone she knew to take their child to Dr. Holland, the doctor that had saved her daughter's life. On August 27th, one-month-old Brandy Benitez was brought into the clinic with diarrhea and bloody stool. Dr. Holland talked to her parents and got a medical history while Janine had the patient in the exam room. Again, when the doctor got to the exam room, the baby was not breathing. They rushed her to the hospital with Janine in the ambulance and Dr. Holland following in her car. At one point, paramedics reported that Janine started a second IV and Brandy immediately started getting worse. After six days at the hospital, Brandy made a full recovery and doctors at the hospital couldn't figure out what happened. On August 30th, Marianne Parker brought her four-month-old son, Christopher, into Dr. Holland's office because he was having trouble breathing. They transported him to the hospital, and while there, another boy, seven-year-old Jimmy Pearson, was admitted to the same hospital. Jimmy was born with a hereditary condition that made him not develop properly and he suffered from seizures. Dr. Holland decided to transfer both children to Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio, about an hour and a half from where they were in Kerrville. A helicopter from Fort Sam Houston's 507th Medical Company arrived to transport both patients to Santa Rosa Hospital. Janine joined them on the flight and about 15 minutes into their journey, she started saying that Jimmy was having seizures. The paramedics with her on the flight didn't see anything wrong with the boy. Janine used a stethoscope to listen to his heart despite it being far too loud on the helicopter to hear it. Then she said his heartbeat was irregular, but according to the heart monitor, Jimmy was stable. Janine pulled a syringe out of her bag and pushed it into his IV line. The paramedic told her to stop, but she did it anyway. Suddenly, Jimmy's heart started beating irregularly and he started turning blue. The paramedics were able to give the boy CPR until they got him to the hospital where he was stabilized. When Janine was asked what happened, she said that during the flight, Jimmy turned black, so she gave him an injection of neosinephrine, which is meant to open a patient's airways. Then she said it was 10 minutes before his irregular heartbeat started. At Santa Rosa Hospital, a nurse who had previously worked with Janine noticed the high number of Dr. Holland's patients who were being transferred to the hospital. When she learned that the doctor had hired Janine, she confronted her. She asked the doctor why she had hired her, and Dr. Holland said, quote, she's very good. Despite her practice only being open for a week and having almost every one of her patients stop breathing and need emergency care while alone with Janine, Dr. Holland still didn't suspect the nurse was doing anything wrong. Even after Janine spent four days in the hospital, which resulted in no patient at her clinic requiring hospital treatment. In September, Patty McClellan brought Chelsea back into the clinic for a checkup and a couple of vaccines. She had been perfectly healthy since she had been at the clinic previously and was only there for a checkup. When Janine gave her her first shot from a syringe that she had prepared ahead of time, Chelsea started having trouble breathing and started having a seizure. Okay, now seriously, every single damn kid that comes in this clinic is fine until Janine gets her hands on them. You can't be this fucking dense. They got her to the hospital where they placed a breathing tube and stabilized the baby. Then they called for an ambulance to transfer her to a bigger hospital in San Antonio. During the ambulance ride, one where Janine was present, Chelsea crashed again and they made it to another smaller hospital, but the girl died in the emergency room. The next day, Janine did it again. Five-month-old Jacob was brought into the clinic because he wouldn't stop crying. He had no history of breathing problems or seizures. After being left alone in the exam room with Janine, he stopped breathing and had to be rushed to the hospital where he was stabilized. The parents heaped praise on Janine for saving their baby's life. Was that what she was looking for? She seemed happy to be looked at as a hero, but she seemed equally as satisfied if the child died. Or did she just live for the excitement of trying to save the baby, not caring if it lived or died? 
Receiving praise when the baby lived was just icing on the cake. Janine would later tell Dr. Holland that Jacob had a bulging fontanelle, the soft area on a baby's skull where bones haven't fully hardened. Then he turned blue and started seizing. She would later tell authorities that she never examined the boy in the clinic, but her story to the doctor, her notes during the appointment, and the parents' recollection all contradicted that. The next day, two more of Dr. Holland's patients arrested and had to go to the emergency room. At that point, doctors at the hospital knew something was wrong. No pediatrician had that many of their patients need to be admitted to the hospital. They had a surgeon named Dr. Jovinus begin looking into the background of both Dr. Kathy Holland and LVN Janine Jones. He called the hospital where Dr. Holland did her residency, and the doctor there said he didn't know anything unusual about Kathy. But there had been a rash of unexplained child deaths at Bexar County Hospital in San Antonio. He said that they were all connected to one nurse, but he couldn't remember her name. When Dr. Venus said the name Janine Jones, the doctor confirmed that that was it. It was then that someone finally notified law enforcement of Janine's involvement in the deaths of countless children. When Dr. Holland was informed about the investigation, she was asked about her use of succinylcholine, but despite keeping some in her clinic, she said she had never used it. It was locked up and only accessible by her and Janine. When she got back to her office, she retrieved the bottle and held it up to the light. It looked like it was still full. Then she looked at the top of the vial and found the safety cap missing and two distinct needle marks in the rubber top. She finally accepted that Janine was in fact harming patients. She took the vial to Dr. Venus and after consulting an anesthesiologist, they were told that a low dose of the drug, which was normally a paralytic, would cause a child to convulse while it took effect, causing the appearance of a seizure. All the puzzle pieces were coming together. Texas Ranger Joe Davis investigated the case and interviewed Janine, who adamantly denied having injected life-threatening drugs into patients. She even volunteered to take a polygraph test, so Ranger Davis called her bluff and gave her one. Unsurprisingly, she failed. When the case was handed over to District Attorney Ron Sutton, it was a massive undertaking. Eight of Dr. Holland's patients had been poisoned, and the possible poisonings happened in her clinic, in ambulances, in an army medical helicopter, and at multiple hospitals. The investigation developed into a huge battle between the DA, Janine Jones, Dr. Holland, and the Bexar County Hospital. It had come to light that there were 11 more suspicious child deaths at their hospital that they had essentially covered up and they were continuing to deny there was ever a problem. So the DA leaked the details of the investigation to the news, and suddenly everyone in Texas knew that the hospital was trying to keep the excessive amounts of child deaths in the pediatric ICU under wraps. The hospital's PR department tried to do damage control, but multiple doctors, surgeons, and nurses began contacting the DA to talk to them about Janine. Soon, the hospital agreed to fully cooperate with the investigation. The DA had a lot of circumstantial evidence, but no solid proof. Chelsea McClellan's body was exhumed so that a new test could be performed on tissue samples. The test could identify if succinylcholine had been injected into the tissue. When the test came back positive, Janine Jones was indicted for the murder of Chelsea McLennan and the intentional harm she had done to seven other children who were patients of Dr. Holland. She was arrested the same day. Janine maintained her innocence, but the tests that showed succinylcholine in Chelsea's tissue, along with a witness who had seen Janine inject a clear liquid that wasn't ordered by the doctor just before the patient stopped breathing and had seizures, was more than enough to convince the jury. Not to mention the sheer unlikeliness that all these cases just only happened when Janine was alone with patients. It only happened to her patients on her shift at the hospital and completely stopped when she left. Then they picked right back up at Dr. Holland's clinic. It was a statistical impossibility for that to just naturally happen. On February 11, 1985, Janine Jones was found guilty of the murder of Chelsea McClellan and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Later that year, she was sentenced to 60 more years for the attempted murder of Rolando Santos. The terms were to be served concurrently, though. 
In 2011, Janine sent a letter to the Texas Board of Nursing apologizing for all the damage she had done because of her crimes. She claimed that she wasn't of sound mind any time before 1994. She wrote, quote, I look back now on what I did and agree with you that it was heinous, that I was heinous. In 2016, Janine was scheduled for mandatory release due to a new Texas law that was put in place to prevent prison overcrowding. Victims of Janine banded together to do something to keep the baby murderer in prison. Some of the people who were advocating for her to stay in prison were the babies she had tried to kill. Rolando Santos went on the news and expressed his concern over Janine's possible release. The district attorney in San Antonio dusted off all of the old files from the children that had died under Janine's care, and it was the case of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer that had the best chance of keeping the nurse in prison. That was the case where the doctor had ordered a blood test in an effort to find a proper treatment for the baby, but once Joshua died, the test result just got filed away. The results wouldn't help the doctor keep Joshua alive, but they would help prove that he was poisoned. Janine was charged with the murder of Joshua Sawyer, and in 2020, she pleaded guilty in exchange for the DA dropping four other charges. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. She will be 87 years old by then. Janine Jones decided to play God, and the power of holding someone else's life in her hands was so intoxicating, she let it lead to the deaths of at least two dozen infants, possibly more. She harmed and killed the most vulnerable amongst our society, our babies. She did it to experience a feeling of power, a euphoria that no drug could recreate. She hid in plain sight, ready to kill babies for her own high. She's the very definition of a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.